Welcome to Cold Steel, the Canadian Journal of Surgery podcast with your hosts Amir Farouk and Chad Ball. The goal of the CJS podcast is threefold. The first is to highlight the best research currently being completed by Canadian surgeons. The second is to offer educational topics for both surgeons and trainees alike. And most importantly, the third goal is to inspire discussion, thoughts, creativity, and career development in all Canadian surgeons. We hope you enjoy it. On the podcast today, we have the privilege of chatting with Dr. Omar Farouk. Omar is much more than Amir's dad. His story of immigration, medical training, and raising a family in a new country is both inspiring and motivational. The aim of this podcast was to discuss some of the challenges that international medical graduates face. More specifically, Dr. Farouk provides insight on how to potentially navigate many of these hurdles, maintain a productive mental outlook, and ultimately to succeed. We'll let Dr. Farouk tell you his story. So, Dr. Farouk, thank you very much for, for joining us on Cold Steel. It's an absolute pleasure to have you. This is a really special addition, uh, uh, I think, of the podcast and something we've been thinking about for a long, very long period of time. And, and we're really, really privileged to, to have you uh, participate and help us out with it. Our, our goal really was to, was to understand in a more nuanced way the international medical graduate experience within the surgical world and, and, and see not only what that was like, but also how we can improve and how we can help the, the pathway of, uh, of some folks. Um, start us off then, I was wondering if you could tell us a bit about where you grew up, uh, when did you come to Canada, and what your particular training pathway was like. Chad, uh, first of all, thanks very much for, for having me on the program. And I really believe that the privilege is actually mine uh, that I could be invited to such a forum because, you know, I feel that uh, the pathway that I have taken i'm sure lots of other people can you know are going, are going to be taking so i think i think if i can facilitate that uh, through your forum I, I i think it's a big honor for me anyways i grew up in pakistan which is in southeast asia you know i was in state so when i would they would ask me so you know where did you come from i say from pakistan and they would always say oh you know that's that state close to pennsylvania I said, no, no, that's in Southeast Asia. So I grew up in <laughs> Southeast Asia. Um, I did my medical school from there. And in 1988, uh, I decided to come in here. And I'll never forget that I landed on 14th of February. It was a cold day. And you know, when we were coming on the plane, that's why I remember the date so well, they were handing out flowers. So, you know, my wife who's uh, born, you know, has lived all of her life in Canada. I said, like, why are they passing flowers out in the plane? And, you know, they told me it's Valentine's Day. So that was my introduction to Canada. And I landed in um, in your city, Chad, and it was just all snow. And I was wondering, you know, what, what is going to be, in, be my next step in which I could, the only thing I could see, see from up on the sky was snow. Um, I then went ahead and uh, did what, most IMGs do, upgraded myself, wrote my exams, uh, went to Cleveland actually, because I wanted to do, initially I wanted to do, I wanted to do surgery, but I thought, uh, you know, the Achilles tendon for a surgeon is always medicine, you know, as you know, you know, double blind study is two surgeons looking at an EKG. So I didn't want to get into that. So I thought, might as well go and learn a little bit of medicine. So I got lucky enough uh, and uh, had the privilege of 
being in a very good hospital in Cleveland. Uh, did a year there uh, and got a breakthrough and came to Saskatoon, Saskatchewan. Um, did my five years of general surgery there. Went back to U.S. because I wanted to go back to to Pakistan to do cardiac surgery there. So I actually went to South Carolina, uh, Medical Medical University of South Carolina. Did about nine months of of uh, cardiac surgery. And after doing a few pumps, I knew this was not for me. Came back, did one year of laparoscopic fellow, uh, fellowship at uh, McMaster with Dr. Anwari. And uh, then came to, uh, to Fort Saskatchewan uh, as a community surgeon and have been there for about 22 years. Never looked back. Wow, that's an amazing voyage. Just broadly speaking, and then maybe specifically, if, if you think it's helpful, what were some of the dominant obstacles, maybe both in terms of, you know, your, your initial medical training, as well as just potentially uh, psychologically and socially when you first came over? And then in particular, as you, as you pursued that, that really complex and, and, and high level uh, uh, training career path. Okay. Chad, I, I think you hit it. That one word uh, is so important, the psychological part. You know, the mindset was my biggest obstacle. For me, there were two transitions. One is I was moving from one part of the world, which was very different from the other part of the world, which may not be true for all IMDs. You know, some IMDs are actually um, uh, in Canada. They go and train and then come back. Mine was a different scenario. I had, I had two things to become familiar with. It's just like anatomy, right? If, uh, you know, you have to know about a little bit of brain and a little bit of, of abdominal surgery, both at the same time, uh, with, within a limited period of time. So, so with my, for me, I came up with a perfectionist mindset. And, you know, it was obvious that when you are in a new place, perfectionist mind, mindset doesn't work. You have to have a growth mindset. So if I had to say that what was my biggest obstacle, the biggest obstacle was myself. Um, well, I'll give you a small example, you know, just to get into a residency, you know, I didn't have people telling me that, you know, you have to actually apply into a program. When I passed my exams, I thought, yeah, you know what, why don't I just go and try out things as we, as we do in Southeast Asia. If you wanted to do something, you just go after it. So I actually got a ticket for, from Greyhound and drove in, drove into U.S. without an interview. So the first guy looked at me, he's like, are you crazy? What do you think you're doing and looking for an interview? But the second place I landed an interview and that was my home for a year. So I think mindset is the real thing, which was my most dominant obstacle. I myself was the biggest obstacle. And that also gave, put me in a mindset that in, in order for me to, to do better and to contribute, uh, the biggest obstacle is also going to be me because as soon as I got into a training program, the language was different. Uh, uh, you know, you know, right now the language is dude. At that time, it was a different different word that I couldn't understand. <laughs> so, so my thing was, Chad. I would call my wife and I said, you know, this guy is saying this to me. What does it really mean in this terminology? So the language aspect of it, and. Um, I'll give you a small example. You know, when I go for my for my rounds in the morning, we, you know, in Pakistan where you go, you know, you shake hands with everybody. 
And so here, the residents were nice enough, but after about five rounds, they said, like, we don't shake hands, let's get to work. Um, so it was a little bit of adjustment of a culture, the language barrier, like I said, the most important part for an IMG who's actually migrating, that he has to sort of leave that cultural package behind. Not that there is anything wrong with that, but you know, in order for for a person to do well, he has to understand the norms um, of um, you know where he's operating on, uh, whether it's in the abdomen or whether it's in a society. He has to to constantly find out what he thinks. So, in a in a in a very generic way, that was the problem. In a specific way, I was not used to computers at that time, so so I had I had to learn that. Sometimes I think being an IMG, contrary to what most people think, actually conveys some benefits. Like I think it allows you to maybe see things differently than other people see it. Um, and then and, and there's also a certain sense of, of family that you see among IMGs. Like when I see, you know, all the, the, the Pakistani residents, they're tight. Like their families are tight. They're tight. And they have a different sense of having kind of gone through this journey and this whole uphill struggle that no one else will really uh, understand except for them. So do you think there's been any benefits for ha- having come from Pakistan and, and then started training here? And and do you think there's a special kind of camaraderie that links uh, um, other IMGs together? Mm-hmm. I mean, that's a, that's a great question. But, you know, retrospectoscope, as you know, is perfect. You know, when you do an appendectomy, you can always say, well, you know what? I could have done it differently in that time. But when you're actually going through somebody who's got a BMI of 46, and that's what it seemed like at that time, that you're operating on somebody who's got a BMI of 46, you know, you're going to easily get lost in the momentum there somewhere. Uh, at that time, it doesn't feel like camaraderie or it doesn't feel like you have a, a definite advantage. Uh, your mindset is is very different when you come in as an um, as an ing because there is a lot of stress um a lot of stress because people from where you're coming in and and joining in have expectations so stress management so you know you know that you know your um, success is on the other part on the other end of stress so you so one thing that that uh, that one doesn't realize that for an IMG, stress management uh, is actually a very important part because, you know, he has to manage stress. He's sometimes coming from a background that everything looks new to him. You know, you take somebody's language away and you bring him down to a zero. And this camaraderie among residents, you know, you find camaraderie only when... um, It's a strange analogy that just came to my mind. You know, it's like, um, you know, if there is one goat and there are 10 lions going after it, uh, you know, you have to figure out, are you the goat or are you the lion? It becomes very different. So it's like 10 IMGs going into one residency spot. You know, it's, you know, and one, only one person is going to get what you get. As soon as, as the kill is over, everybody comes and joins in. So, you know, when you saw me, it was you... All of us were residents at that time. That struggle that went in. So the camaraderie among IMGs is because, again, you know, the mindset 
and I and you know I believe in a in a different mindset. The mindset is that of and that is pervasive also, right? It's the economic mindset of scarcity. That we have limited resources and you know there are only a few spots and you know only a lucky few are gonna get it. So it it takes you in a, into a mindset that you know it becomes very competitive. So rather than helping people and using those two years of your life or one year of your life to get into a program to help each other, it becomes like, you know, you were in a jungle trying to make a kill. So afterwards, like I said, it's it's a very serene kind of atmosphere and everybody's nice. But, you know, what you're not, that's the tip of the iceberg. What you, uh, and I mean, that's something that only an IMG can experience. The guy who did not get that job who's still driving a cab or still selling a pizza um, and still filling up gas, he has very different emotions about the camaraderie. Um, he still thinks of himself as... He, he basically loses his own self-dignity. So he not only, <laughs> of course, loses his his skills. But, you know, if you don't operate, you lose your those motor skills. So he loses on many different ends. He loses... Uh, he loses his skills as a, as a, whatever he's trained in, but more importantly, he loses his confidence. And you know, when you lose your confidence, that that string that holds everything together, uh, it's an integration. So I would say that that camaraderie that that uh, that international medical medical graduates experience after they have done residency and before they have done residency are two very different things. So it's not all rosy uh, <laughs> when you are going to work there. But once you are in that, uh, b beyond that threshold, it's very different. That's that's such a profound series of comments, uh, Dr. Farouk. And, you know, if, it, it's an interesting time, of course, and maybe we'll get into it towards the, the end. But, you know, as, the, as now a middle-aged white male who certainly would be described as privileged growing up in Canada, certainly I, I was on the personal, you know, my family was on the lower socioeconomic side of things. Um, I, I am aware of, of some of the struggles that you speak of, you know, that I never have to deal with, it, had to deal with at any point, but certainly certainly not all of them. And it's remarkable to, to hear that, that point of view. Um, as I guess as a, as a greater country and, and, and a medical community and in particular a surgical community, of course, now that you've been part of for, for a number of decades, how do we make that experience better for an international medical graduate trying to navigate that pathway within Alberta, within Canada? How do, how do, we, how do we gain more insight? How do we show more insight? How do we be more helpful for those particular folks who you know, maybe have that aptitude and that drive and they're going to be wonderful contributors to our medical landscape. Um, Chad, first of all, I think the most important part is, uh, uh, again, having a mentor. Um, and, and I think if, uh, first of all, the, the criteria of who can or cannot come in has to be as stringent as possible, you know. Um, you know, you are, you are up there in, 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 in training residents and, you know, we always feel proud on saying, you know, I'm only going to let that resident go who can operate on my mother or my wife. So, you know, that criteria always has to be there. 
uh, it doesn't matter whether you're an international medical graduate uh, that uh, that you're trying to help. The bottom line is that the criteria has to be met that this person is uh, you know smart enough and trustworthy enough that you can let one of your loved ones get gets operated on. So so that that formula uh, that the that the Canadian surgeons apply, and I think surgeons apply that all over the world, uh, is the golden grail. Uh, there is no question about it. Uh, that has to be met. Having said that, you know what I didn't know, Chad, was the research aspect of things. Uh, so you know, when I, if I would have come in and, and somebody would have said, you know what, you have this one year that's vacant, that you know, you you start sort of trying to figure out what the next step is. If somebody would have just taken mentorship, uh, or there, if there was a program in which um, I know what an avid researcher you are, for example, and you know if there was an avenue I could connect with you, um, I, I think that would have been very helpful. The second thing is uh, uh, now that I've been a certain, you know, when I would go into the operating room initially, um, there is a very different. Um, a very different perception. If somebody, if a surgeon would shout at me, for example, or you know, was throwing a tent to tramp, to me it really didn't affect me, and I thought this was normal. And uh, you know, if a foreign medical medical graduate or an international medical graduate that comes through, if he is sort of educated in this, that this is not normal, that uh, you know, he could. He actually has to be nurtured like a small little tree uh, because he comes on with his own background of complexes. Uh, he sort of thinks of himself a little bit less than everybody. Uh, uh, and then the reason then becomes important, it becomes important, Dr. Paul, because then he cannot contribute as much as his potential is. And, you know, that's the biggest thing in my mind that if our community as surgeons can take all the small obstacles or the big hurdles away from a path of such a person and let him just nurture, you just don't, you know, we, we both know that human potential is limitless. There is no such thing as impossible. But that person has to realize it himself or herself. So in a more generic fashion, if a program director or the surgeons who are involved can nurture a person uh, and especially an IMG and just take the obstacles out of, of the way and and concentrate on those things which he or she may not have enough exposure, uh, which I think is is the research mindset. Um, I think it will go long ways. One of the things that people widely perceive as potentially getting a foot in the door is to become a clinical associate. And just for context for our listeners, the clinical associate program in Alberta is a program by which often IMGs are um, employed within a particular specialty, often a surgical specialty, but also internal medicine as well, where they can practice as uh, almost like uh, as, as a resident um, looking after a particular service. Abu, what are your thoughts on 
being a clinical associate, you, you and I both know kind of um, sometimes how clinical associates can, can be treated. Uh, but on the flip side, sometimes it, it does seem like it, it maybe is a, a foot in the door for people. What do you think? Uh, uh, what are your thoughts on the clinical associate program? Do you think that that's something that is good or is it kind of exploitative for IMGs? Mm-hmm. I mean, again, uh, you know, when you are looking for light and you even see a little glimmer, you hold on tight, right? So clinical associate program, I think is definitely a big benefit, but you know how you always judge a program by what the end result is, what, what the end result. If, um, you know, for, for listeners, you know, we are in Alberta, if Alberta health, uh, end goal is to get a clinical associate to a point in which he or she can apply for residency. I think it's a great idea, right? And for somebody, you know, on an average, I don't know whether you're aware of not a clinical associate gets paid 30 bucks an hour, which is, they have really cut down on it. And so clinical associate for a clinical, for a person who's getting in, uh, if that's the end of his career, that he is going to die um, <laughs> as a clinical associate. Well, you know, obviously I don't think that's like, for that person, that may not be a fulfillment of his or her dream. But if there was a pathway in which clinical associates uh, could get into the gets into in, in into this program, and then has the ability to really um, shine, and and you know uh, other people can see that this person has potential, and then apply into a residency program, I think that that would be great. That down, so I think it's better than having nothing. But I think the goals have to be defined very clearly. So, you know, in Quebec, for example, as you know, with this COVID, they have asked people to come in and, and, and apply for, for jobs, which are only going to be there uh, till the COVID ends, and then it's all over. So, you know, the, you know it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out what, 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 what that clinical associate is going to be doing. You know, that's a step. In the door for him, but at what cost? Well, uh, that that person has to decide. But you know the analogy that comes to my mind again. You know the Mughals used to have those big knives, which are, you know, which were very carved, and you know, which had emeralds on them, and you know, lots of uh, jewels on it. But you know, if you use that knife to cut onions, you know, it's not not really a smart idea, right? So if the clinical associate thinks of himself that you know this is it for me it's like using that knife that could do lots of things and you know you're just cutting onions with it so so i think the end goal of this clinical associate program for for people like dr ball is very important uh, because they look at it as that here is a stream of fresh minds and smart people coming through but then people higher up who are in residency programs are actually looking for these people and saying, okay, you know, this guy can help Canada and can help uh, progress the, the art of surgery. That's, that's really interesting. You know, you know we think, uh, as you do, I think a, a lot about the clinical associate program here in Alberta and the delivery of it. And I, I think your, your points are just are so dead on. Um, 
you know, I think that that program probably is just like all the rest of life, you know, in and outside of medicine, life is sort of a bell curve. And the folks at the very top end of it who utilize that platform and that exposure to people and are real stars, they tend to walk into residency programs, as you're saying. There's a small cohort at the bottom of the bell curve, really, that um, maybe are a long, long way away from being able to contribute in in that way, even in the in the near to mid future, in the country. But I, I do worry about that program and that concept. And you're sort of highlighting it for the you know the bulk of the bell curve. And it, I, I always sort of reflect on my on my connection with South Africa. Um, you know, I, I credit uh, Cape Town and the, the trauma world in South Africa with with a lot of my training. And in that old school British system, you know, as you probably know, it's it's quite interesting because you can be stuck as a, a same year resident for many, many, many years and not progress. And I always, you know, when I first went down there as a resident to train for an elective, I, I, I'd never seen that system. And I was sort of blown away that it even existed because certainly, you know, in North America, certainly in Canada, you, you move forward, you have attainable goals, you make them, you don't make them, but you know where you sit. And I do worry that that same sort of mentality or or maybe reality applies to the 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 bulk of the bell curve for folks in the clinical associate program to the point that i wonder you know exactly how how much we are helping them or or inhibiting them uh, at all so i guess my question after droning on about that is the the psychology of that of being stuck in in feeling stuck in one place um, must be like my South African friends, just terribly demoralizing and difficult to deal with. How, how do you, not, not that you maybe ever personally experienced that aspect of it, because you're clearly a star from the beginning, but how, how do you deal with that? How do they deal with that? And, and, and how can they break out of it potentially? Well, uh, you know, you're, you're dead on again, uh, Dr. Ball. But, you know, it's the same thing as Viktor Frankl, you know, while he was living in Auschwitz. Uh, it's your mindset. He, he, first of all, he knew that this was going to be a long struggle, but he only concentrated on those things which he could change because you're right. You know, once the hope is gone, you know, you as a person sort of, uh, you know, disintegrate in, at many different levels. Some do it in a, in a big way and some people just, you know, if you lose your dreams, you lose everything, I think. It, it, and uh, you are absolutely right, Chad. Some, sometimes, like like you mentioned about South Africa, and I know in, in Pakistan also, the system just helps a few people. And for other people, there's just total loss of their dreams, and they are just stuck in that system. Now, what is the solution for that? Um, I, I think the solution for that, again, is that those people who are, that there has to be a program for those people who are, in there and not able to get up, uh, get off there, that there has to be. And again, I believe in research so much that I think, first of all, we, I don't want to use the word study, but you know, we actually get those people involved and say, okay, what are the other areas that you can contribute? So, you know, not everybody can, can become a star trauma surgeon, but everybody can write the economics about medicine. So, you know, those people who are there, maybe medicine was just a foot in the door and for them. And, you know, now they are in Canada. Uh, 
because Chad, again, if you go in in a mind of an ING, uh, there is a lot more uh, social aspects of how why that person became a doctor in the first place. Because I really believe that if you love something, you will get to the top of it. So that's the passion that drives. Yeah, that you know, that's that's perfect. And you you preempted you know a concept that I really wanted to talk about, which is exactly that when. When things aren't going well, how do you reintegrate and, and rekindle your your passion or your your movement forward? You know, I, um, w- one of our listeners who's who's a close friend of mine, he's an HPV surgeon who who most of the HPV community knows quite well, and I, I won't say his name, but you know, he came over from his from his country as an IMG, and and he was literally the janitorial staff in the hospital. That was his entry point and uh, work and work and work and then he hooked up with an HPV surgeon who ran a lab sort of befriended that HPV surgeon who had been in that facility for a long time ended up transitioning into the lab ended up transitioning and redoing medical school residency fellowship and then you know now obviously it's a very successful and and really great guy uh, in that field and I look at him and I, I and I'm amazed by the story and impressed by it and he's such a beautiful human being but I do also recognize you know, a guy with that kind of drive and that kind of um, hidden talent, at least hidden initially to, to people around him, he's going to do great. He's going to be a star because he has the same qualities that you do. Um, but I do continue to worry about, you know, the, the folks maybe who aren't as driven or optimistic or, or talented um, in, in these programs. And, and uh, I, I, I worry about it, quite honestly. Chad, again, that speaks uh, uh, more about what your prospects about, uh, you you know, your perspective on on life is. And, you know, in the end, it comes on to, you know, how much, what percentage of your own internal uh, uh, aspects that that you get to rediscover. I I don't don't think that there is any any shortcut to that. I, I totally agree with you. One of uh, my favorite stories growing up is um, the story that, um, you know, we would always hear about when you first came to the U.S. and and to Canada where, you know, you have to write uh, the LMCC exams um, or sorry, maybe it was the USMLEs that you had to write. In any case, you know, you, you met this uh, Pakistan, another Pakistani who had been living in in uh, in Cleveland for years, where you were doing your internship, and you told him, "Well, I'm planning to write both my both my USMLEs uh, in the next year, write one sitting." And he said, "Oh, you're crazy! Like, you know, I've been trying studying and trying to to do this exam for years, and I, I have I have I've failed." And you and you told mom that. You know what? I'm going to give it one shot. Otherwise, that's it. I'm going. I'm going back. How much do you think the fact that you had us and you had a family kind of changed your motivation? And and uh, obviously, you're not unique in that. Lots of IMGs come to Canada with a with a family, and that's often, I think, the reason why many IMGs come to to Canada is looking for better opportunities for their family and for their children. But how do you think that knowing that you had uh, five of us um, to, to look after and to think about, how do you think that changed your perspective? How do you think that that motivated you in a different way? And, 
and what advice do you have to other IMGs who have families and are, and are trying to raise their families uh, in a new country while at the same time themselves going through this tremendous journey? Um, you know, uh, as far as family is concerned, of course, in medicine, uh, uh, I, I really believe that you need to have a partner in life that can take care of your kid, uh, just because it becomes exponentially hard or the person has to be so motivated that he or she can do surgery or do medicine and then come back and take care of the kids. Both aspects have to be there. For us as uh, IMGs, you know, the first thing I think for an IMG who's going through, remember what I was telling you that there is always that stress component uh, that happens. So the most important thing that I thought that I was never going to think about myself as a victim. Um, and that that mentality that, you know, whatever I have to do, if I have five, you know, or two or three kids at that time, um, I, I really felt that that was a strong point for me, not, not uh, that motivated me um, to go out and, and, and do things. And, um, and again, at that time, family becomes important because uh, it's not really about medicine or surgery at that time. It's how you control your stress that goes with it because you're not getting anywhere, uh, at least for initial period of time. And when you come home, you look, you know, it, it may sound, sound like very cliche or a movie scene that you see your kid laying there and you're saying like, you know, how am I, how am I gonna feed them or what's gonna happen? So, you know, it, it becomes a reality at that time. Uh, it's not really a movie scene. It really does happen that, you know, you see your kids and you get motivated every day. You know, one other way that we can connect together with international medical graduates is having their families integrate themselves. Because, you know, the struggles are the same. Um, you know, in residency, you always have a grunt room, you know, in which you complain against people like your professors, like Dr. Ball, and you know, he did this to me, he did that to me. And, you know, you can all get together and say, well, you know what, these <laughs> are the struggles that I'm having. Uh, you know, some somehow once you release that struggle, it becomes, and somehow you feel like you've vented everything and you're ready for the next day. So I think uh, meeting together with families, uh, having a clear goal, most important thing is not get into that victim, victim mode that, you know, man, you know, I have these kids, what's going to happen to me? You just can't. Use this as a motivation, not as an obstacle. Abu, I, you've kind of touched on this a little bit already in that I think it's, it's so important to actually have a mentor or a community. Um, you know, I always I always think of that story that you tell where when, when you came um, uh, to, to Cleveland and, and we made friends or you made friends with uh, other Pakistani doctors and someone just offered out of the blue to to edit your CV uh, like they, they said literally just send me your CV and I'm gonna go through it without you even asking them to do it and they totally revamped your CV and made it possible for you to go and uh, apply to surgical residencies um, so beyond having the like reaching out and becoming part of the community are there any specific resources um, that you think are important for IMGs to know about? Um, and what would those be? I, I think the most important resources is, is people. I really believe that for IMGs, 
connecting with people, um, uh, you know, uh, along with their community uh, is really important. But I, I think, um, I think, Amir, for IMGs who are coming in now, uh, the resources are all available uh, on on the uh, on the net, if I may use that word. Uh, I think it's not about the availability of resources, uh, which is there. I think there is a big distinction between knowing something and having knowledge of something. Um, so although the resources are there, I really believe that it's in small steps how an IMG uh, uses those resources and gets to where he or she wants to get to. Um, so I, I, I think it's not about resources. It's, again, um, being able to cultivate those those resources in oneself that, that, that I think is important. You know, Dr. Farouk, your, your insights and your, um, your humanity, quite honestly, and your advice is, uh, it's, we can't thank you enough for it. And I think this podcast is going to do a, hopefully a, a lot um, with our international medical graduates. Um, you know, obviously, Amir and I have been doing this now for, for many months, and there's been a few world events that have uh, um, sort of uh, occurred while we've been doing it, and it would probably be remiss if we didn't touch on it. And certainly, the, the global call for um, uh, quote-unquote visible minority equity right now uh, is, is clearly very, very front and center. Um, I, I guess I'd like to end the podcast with, with your views on that. You know, as a, uh, it seems a little bit funny to apply this label to you because, of course, you, you've been in Alberta as a, as a staff surgeon for so many years, but I guess as a visible, visible minority, as a surgeon, as a father, as a husband, as an international, international medical graduate, and as a Canadian, um, how do you view the, the current equity discussion that's going on? Um, how do you process it? And, and what do you think about it going forward? Um, you know, not only in the U.S. where yourself and myself and a lot of us have lived, and it is a different place, but in particular as applied to Canada and, and maybe even the, the medical surgical world. We have forgotten as surgeons our role for, for having, uh, you know, this equity distribution. And you know, who are better people to understand this um, than surgeons, right? We, when we cut a person, we know that the blood is always the same color. The gallbladder always looks the same. You know, when, you, when you're doing transplants, usually you don't match by color. You look at HLA and you know, at that time you, you don't have that distinction. So we know as surgeons that this is such an arbitrary uh, division. Uh, of color, you know, when 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 you have a bleeding vessel, you deal with it very differently than how you deal deal with a chronic wound. Um, and I find that this racism problem or this color problem is one should deal with it at, at all aspects, like just like uh, surgeons, you know, operative way versus non-operative way. Because you know, life for me, being as a surgeon, honestly, has become so binary that it almost feels like Okay, what's the operative way? What's the non-operative way? Uh, so I, I would think, you know, if you just think of it as a pre-operative assessment, I think one should just, you know, as surgeons, even if we contribute 10 doc, if first of all, if we think that that's a problem, you know, just like we have given up hospital administration, 
uh, I know I only complain about it, but don't contribute because don't contribute to it towards it because I always feel like this is not my problem. So the first thing is realizing that it's a it it is a problem and we have to deal with it. I think that in itself will go long ways. And who else can deal with it better than people who who see blood every day? If you know what I mean. Um, so if, even if we contribute like you know ten dollars uh, in in an area that we that we decide um, you know First Nations come to mind you know other other minorities come to mind that we are going to support ten kids uh, in a year uh, the surgical community I'm not talking about Canadians uh, specifically but generally. And in our community, we are going to have pathways for these 10 students. We are going to facilitate that these people have role models and they can actually, all the hurdles that come for, for this specific background um, are dealt with. Um, I think that's, that's the first thing, uh, that we start at a very uh, basic educational level. Um, and then you know what? that sort of the pre-operative assessment intraoperatively you know sometimes like you know you know you have to stop you have to uh, put pressure on the blood vessels and some, sometimes you have to tie it sometimes if uh, the area is gangrenous you just have to to take it off so that all intraoperative approach or the current approach that happens you have to take it event by event basis sometimes you have to uh, and your your discretion your uh, your own biases come 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 at that time. How you're going to approach that particular thing, you know. Basically, remember remembering who we really are as human beings and as surgeons. You've been listening to Cold Steel, the official podcast of the Canadian Journal of Surgery. If you've liked what you've been listening to, please leave us a review on iTunes. We'd love to hear your comments and feedback, so feel free to email us at podcast.cjs at gmail.com or connect with us on Twitter at CanJSurge. Thanks again.